Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, the new First Presidency Announcement. Or does the LDS Church now have an illegitimate First Presidency? On Tuesday, January 15th, a special broadcast was made to the world announcing the selection and setting apart of the new First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Elder D. Todd Christofferson serves as the MC of sorts in this public announcement made specifically to the members of the church. The announcement itself runs approximately 18 minutes long and needs to be distinguished from the press conference that is held shortly thereafter. In this announcement, Elder Christofferson goes over the basic procedure of how the new church president is selected, which is basically that it is the guy who has served the longest in the Quorum of the Twelve. That person is President Nelson. I am going to play the entirety of this announcement and do a running commentary as we go through. Let's begin now with Elder D. Todd Christofferson, who will introduce himself as Elder D. Todd Christofferson. Good morning. I'm Elder D. Todd Christofferson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and have been asked to conduct this morning's event as chairman of the Church Public Affairs Committee. Maybe it's just me, but it seemed a little bit odd that D. Todd Christofferson is asked to conduct this meeting simply because he is the chairman of the Church Public Affairs Committee. I mean, I know somebody had to do it, and Elder Christofferson is probably a pretty good candidate since he speaks relatively well, or in this case, not speaking so much as reading from a teleprompter. But still, it seemed a bit odd that he would be chosen simply because he is the head of the Church Public Affairs Committee, especially when he is about to make the point that this is not really for public consumption, but this is a special announcement to the members of the Church. Nevertheless, there you have it. Now, of course, Elder Uchtdorf would have been the obvious choice to conduct this meeting. However, it may have been felt enough to have him actually attend his own funeral rather than also make him conduct it. Not so much a criticism as merely a passing observation. Elder Christofferson, excuse me, Elder D. Todd Christofferson continues. We welcome you to from the Salt Lake Temple on this memorable occasion. It is a strange choice of words to welcome people from the temple instead of welcoming them to the temple. So perhaps we can forgive Elder D. Todd Christofferson for making this mistake in reading the teleprompter. You see, because Mormons have to be worthy to enter the temple and therefore be welcomed to the temple, and because not all of the Mormons that Elder Christofferson is addressing are temple-worthy, it would be a mistake to welcome them to the temple because it might give them the idea that they had already passed a temple recommend interview and were therefore worthy to go to the temple when in fact they were not. Once again, legalism manifests itself even in small but unusual word choices in Mormon speeches. When we announce the call of a new First Presidency, we've chosen to speak first to you, the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is at this point that my criticisms are going to become a little more pointed. Notice what Elder D. Todd Christofferson is saying. They are about to have a press conference in which they will announce to the world that they have chosen a new first presidency. But in this meeting, Elder D. Todd Christofferson wants to make a special point of announcing it to the members of the church prior to making the public announcement to the world. The issue that I have here, and the issue that will come up again and again throughout this presentation, is the fact that the apostles of the LDS Church are announcing to the members that they have, two days before, on Sunday, January 13th, already selected the new president of the church, who is President Nelson, and that President Nelson has already selected his two counselors, and that the other apostles have already set President Nelson and his counselors apart in those callings. I will go into this issue in a little bit more detail later on, but suffice it to say at this point that what Elder Christofferson is announcing is that the apostles have already chosen, selected, and set apart the new first presidency without a sustaining vote from the membership of the church, something that the Doctrine and Covenants, which the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is supposed to be governed by, forbids. We remember with fondness President Thomas S. Monson, 
whose funeral was held last Friday. At this point, Elder Christofferson is going to give a basic primer on how it is that the new church president is selected for those who don't already know. He's going to go over the basic fact that according to the procedure that has been in place for approximately a 100 years, the longest-serving apostle will become the new church president. And that, in fact, that is exactly what has happened in this case. This was not a surprise to anybody who is paying attention or who knows about how the new church president is selected. Everybody knew prior to this event that the new president would be Russell M. Nelson. Theoretically, there is room for somebody else to be chosen as president, but the fact is, it is always going to be the longest-serving apostle. I remember shortly after I joined the church that I was talking with a friend of mine who told me about how the new president is chosen. And according to what he told me, once the old president dies, all the remaining apostles get together in a room and they pray about who should become the new church president, and they all get revelation as to who the new church president should be. And miracle of miracles, they all receive the same revelation. They all agree that the person who is to be the new church president should be the new church president. This is not the only time I have heard this idea of revelation actually playing a part in the selection of the new president being important. So perhaps it is a good idea for Elder D. Todd Christofferson to give the members the actual lay of the land on how the new president is chosen. Because really, revelation has nothing to do with the issue. Instead, process and procedure and tradition are what determine the new church president. It has nothing to do with revelation. Really, the only question at this point was not who the new church president would be, but who his counselors would be and whether Elder Uchtdorf would survive the purge. A week before this announcement was made, I had a conversation with my daughter who has recently returned from a mission to Germany and who has a special place in her heart for Elder Uchtdorf. I told her first off that Elder Nelson would become president of the church because that's just the way things are done in the LDS church. But I then told her that it was very likely that Elder Uchtdorf would no longer be in the first presidency. When she asked me why, I did not go into detail, but I simply said, I don't think Elder Nelson and Elder Uchtdorf see eye to eye. As it turned out, I learned of the new first presidency first in a text from this same daughter, who texted me saying, Uchtdorf is out. And then then she added her own personal comment, I am not pleased. My daughter isn't the only person who was not pleased by this change in leadership. I have spoken with a number of members of the church, including those in high leadership positions, who are very concerned about the fact that Elder Uchtdorf was not retained in the first presidency. The impact of dropping Elder Uchtdorf from the first presidency has been wide-ranging in the church and pretty much universally negative. So much so has this been the case that the Salt Lake Tribune ran a story about the fact that many members of the church are not happy about Elder Uchtdorf being kicked out of the first presidency. And then the Deseret News had to publish an article about how Elder Uchtdorf really is just fine with the fact that he is no longer in the first presidency. This in spite of the fact that if you look at the video of this announcement, every time the camera pans to the apostles who are sitting in two rows to the right of the new first presidency, Elder Uchtdorf can be plainly seen looking none too pleased with the situation. And indeed, regardless of what is actually contained in either the article by the Salt Lake Tribune or the Deseret News, the fact that there has been so much media attention to the demotion of Elder Uchtdorf from the first presidency shows that it is indeed a true and living concern among many members of the church. And perhaps a little history is in order at this point regarding the calling of new presidents of the church. Historically speaking, new presidents of the church have retained the counselors that existed under the former president of the church. This has been the case since the time of Brigham Young. There have been times when a former counselor has not been called as a new counselor because of health concerns, such as in the case of Marion G. Romney. But when the old counselors are in good health, as is the case here with Henry B. Eyring and Elder Uchtdorf, there has been only one occasion since the time of Brigham Young, of which I am aware, when an incoming president did not keep both counselors from the former first presidency, and that is the case of Hugh B. Brown. To my knowledge, since the time of Brigham Young, Hugh B. Brown is the only healthy counselor in a first presidency who was not retained by the incoming president, but was instead demoted back 
to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And the reason for that was clear. Elder Hugh B. Brown was very liberal in his views, especially when compared with the more conservative elements of the other church leaders. Elder Hubie Brown, as you may recall, was the first counselor in the First Presidency under David O. McKay at the time of David O. McKay's death, and had been for some time before that. It was also Hubie Brown who tried to use his position in order to lift the priesthood ban on blacks in 1969. If he had been successful, the priesthood ban would have been lifted almost a full decade before it was finally lifted in 1978. But Hubie Brown was thwarted in this attempt by the more conservative faction of the Apostles. As a result of this, when David O. McKay died and Joseph Fielding Smith, one of the members of the more conservative elements of the Apostles, became president, Joseph Fielding Smith released Hubie Brown as first counselor and demoted him back to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Now, technically, it could be said that Joseph Fielding Smith did not actually release him because he was released upon the death of President David O. McKay, but the effect was the same with Hubie Brown. And based upon that piece of history, it was a relatively easy thing to predict that when Russell M. Nelson became president of the church, Elder Uchtdorf, who, like Hubie Brown, was known for representing a more liberal faction of the apostles was not long for this world. The fact that Elder Uchtdorf is probably the most liberal apostle in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints based upon his conference addresses, combined with the fact that Russell M. Nelson represents the conservative hardline section of the apostles based upon his upgrading the horrendous November 2015 exclusionary policy against the children of homosexuals to a revelation in an address he gave in January of 2016 made the fact that President Nelson would indeed demote Elder Uchtdorf out of the first presidency not that hard to predict. However, I do want credit for the fact that Radio Free Mormon, in making this prediction one week before the public announcement, has made more predictions and more prophecies than all 15 of the prophet seers and revelators of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have done for over a century. And in this case, Radio Free Mormon called it right on the nose. It is because of this history and the almost unprecedented action of releasing a counselor in the first presidency by a new president that this could be seen as nothing short of a slap in the face to Elder Uchtdorf, and nothing short of a demotion, and nothing short of a vote of no confidence. When we get to President Nelson's comments, it will be clear that President Nelson tries to throw God under the bus for making this change and say that God is the one who didn't want Elder Uchtdorf to be in the first presidency anymore. I'm not sure if it's any less a slap in the face by having God be the one who's responsible for demoting you. Returning once again to Elder D. Todd Christofferson and the announcement of the new first presidency. When the president of the church passes away, the first presidency is automatically dissolved. The men previously serving as counselors assume their places in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And that quorum assumes leadership of the church with the senior apostle at its head. This part is significant because it shows that the quorum of the Twelve Apostles can continue to lead the church in the absence of a first presidency for any amount of time that is required. In fact, between Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, there was a three-year period that the quorum of the Twelve Apostles led the church. Between Brigham Young and John Taylor... There was another period of time that was over a year, and between John Taylor and Wilfred Woodruff, again, over a year passed before the new first presidency was reorganized. The reason this becomes important is because it gives the lie to the urgency that President Nelson says was required to reorganize the first presidency even before a church vote. In other words, the church could continue to have been led by the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles with Russell M. Nelson as the president of that quorum, certainly for the next several months before General Conference, when it could be put up for a church vote to approve of the proposed action of making Russell M. Nelson the president and his two counselors members of the First Presidency. But this was not done. What the church signaled to the members is that the apostles do not need the common consent of the members to choose the new president of the church or to reorganize the new first presidency. Instead, they will go ahead and take care of this business behind closed doors. They will announce it to the members 
and then we will have a first presidency operating in the church for three months prior to the next general conference in April when there can be an opportunity for a sustaining vote. Now, I think we all know by this time that pretty much every time anything is put in front of the general membership of the church for a vote, it is virtually unanimous. It is as unanimous as the election for president in North Korea. It is a charade of an election. But with this move by the apostles, the charade is over. It signals to the church that they don't need their stinking vote in order to call a new president and in order to reorganize and call a new first presidency. The fact that Elder Christofferson makes a point of announcing it to the members of the church before announcing it publicly to the world in the press conference is a nice way of saying, members of the church, we're going to let you know first that we don't need you anymore. We don't need your vote in order to do whatever it is that we want to do. Last year, Radio Free Mormon did a two-part episode called Apostolic Coup d'Etat, in which I demonstrated how, after the death of Joseph Smith, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, under the leadership of Brigham Young, systematically took over control of the LDS Church. First, they took over the First Presidency. Then they took over leadership of the Church, where stakes are organized from the High Council. They relegated the First Quorum of the Seventy to an inferior status. They got rid of the office of church patriarch, which was higher than the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in the leadership system of the church. And finally, today, with this announcement, the apostolic coup d'etat is complete. Not only have they taken over every function of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in contradiction to the revelations of God and the history of the church, now they have taken over control from the members of the church. No longer is a sustaining vote necessary from the members of the church. No longer do they have to wait for a vote from the members of the church to take office. Instead, they are running the show and the members have no place in the process. The apostolic coup d'etat is complete. When the Lord gave the name of the church in the Doctrine and Covenants in 1838, he gave the name as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Latter-day Saints part was actually important in that designation, because not only is this the Church of Jesus Christ, it is also supposed to be the Church of the Latter-day Saints. But now it is clear that this is no longer the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Rather, it is the Church of President Nelson and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Going back to Elder Christofferson. Soon after the death of a president of the church, Members of the Quorum of the Twelve meet in the temple to consider reconstituting the First Presidency. Please note here that this is a consideration that the Apostles first consider soon after the death of a president, whether the First Presidency should be reconstituted. It is not something that has to happen immediately. In fact, the history of the Church shows that in the first three successions, it did not happen immediately, but rather years intervened between the death of the president and the reconstituting of the first presidency. And during those years, the church was led quite capably and ably by the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So this decision is something that did not have to happen immediately before the church membership could vote on it. What the apostles have done with the first presidency is an exception to the rule in all other cases, even in current church administration. Think about the last time you were present when a new bishopric was formed in your ward. Was the bishopric chosen, called, and set apart prior to presenting them to the ward for a sustaining vote? No, they weren't. They were presented for a sustaining vote first, and then afterward... They were set apart to the calling. The same goes with the stake presidency. A stake presidency is first presented to the stake, and then if they are sustained, then they are set apart to their calling. Instead now, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles violates the rule that is applicable and applied in every other area of the church and says that for them, they don't have to have a sustaining vote before they can call and set apart a new president of the church and a new first presidency in the church. This is the most important position and the most important ruling body in the church. And yet the apostles have completely circumvented the established order of things in the church 
in order to do this. Now, it may well be that this is not the first time that this has happened. The last time it happened that a new president was called was about 10 years ago with President Monson. And frankly, I was not as attuned to this issue then as I am now. And perhaps it is just striking me full in the face with this new announcement. But regardless of whether this is the first time it happened or it has happened before, it is wrong, wrong, wrong. Back to Elder Christofferson. Throughout our history, the senior apostle has always become the successor president of the church. This much is correct, but this begins an interesting dichotomy in the presentation between Elder Christofferson stating the fact that everybody knew who would become the new president. It's the guy who's been an apostle the longest, i.e. President Nelson. But it is counterposed by other comments that are made along the way that make it sound like this is the result of direct divine intervention and revelation. You'll see what I mean when we get to those points. This system precludes any posturing or campaigning for position. You will also note that it precludes any requirement of revelation on the part of the apostles in choosing the new president of the church. Revelation is supplanted by procedure. Legalities and formalities are the way God runs his church today. And provides continuity, seasoned maturity, experience, and extensive preparation for the one who becomes president. It also ensures that the president will be very old by the time he assumes his position, in this case, 93 years old. As Elder John A. Witzow observed, this is a wise procedure. It places at the head of the church the apostle who has been longest in service. He's known well to the people and trusted by them. He himself knows the procedure of church affairs. He is no novice to be trained for the position. And what do any of those qualifications have to do with being a prophet of the living God? I ask you. Joseph Smith seems to have made out okay as a prophet without any of that training that's referred to here. Or at least I would expect the current leaders of the church would have to admit that he did. The new president is set apart by the apostle next in seniority joined by all the other quorum members by the laying on of hands. But once again, this is only supposed to happen after there has been a sustaining vote from the membership of the church. I've referred a couple of times now to the fact this is contrary to the revelations and the doctrine and covenants. Let me go into a little bit more detail on this. Section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants states in verse 63, the elders are to receive their licenses from other elders by vote of the church to which they belong or from the conferences. You see, this wasn't just a mindless sustaining vote that happened every six months at general conference. Instead, this was a real vote, as in voting for somebody for office. If they got a majority of the vote, then they could go ahead and be sustained. If they did not get a majority of the vote, then they could not be sustained and set apart. Verse 65 states, No person is to be ordained to any office in this church. Let me repeat that again in case you didn't catch it the first time. Section 20, verse 65 says, No person is to be ordained to any office in this church where there is a regularly organized branch of the same without the vote of that church. Well, there's certainly a regularly organized branch of this church in Salt Lake City. So let me take that middle part out and just read it without that. Verse 65 of section 20 states, No person is to be ordained to any office in this church without the vote of that church. And yet we have the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles coming out and announcing to the church that without any vote of the church, they have already ordained and set apart Russell M. Nelson to be the president and his counselors to be the new first presidency. That's why I say this is contrary to the revelations of the church that the apostles claim to believe in and claim to follow. They are violating their own revelations in doing this. Section 124 of the Doctrine and Covenants makes the same point in a different way. This is in 1841. Section 20 was given in 1830, 11 years earlier, but the same kind of thing applies. Here the Lord is giving in this revelation different names of people to fill the different positions of leadership in the church. 
Starting in verse 124 of section 124, he gives the name of Hiram Smith to be a patriarch. He goes on to give the name of Joseph Smith to be a presiding elder. He goes on to give the name of Brigham Young to preside over the 12th traveling council. And he goes on to give lists of names to fill different leadership callings and different leadership quorums in the church. It goes on and on like this for a number of verses. And finally, it gets to the money quote in verse 144, where he says, relative to all these names he's given for all these leadership positions in the church, including the president of the church, including the patriarch, including the traveling high council, which is what they called the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles back then, verse 144 states, And a commandment I give unto you, that you should fill all these offices and approve of those names which I have mentioned, or else disapprove of them at my general conference. So let me read that again. A commandment I give unto you, that you should fill all these offices and approve of those names which I have mentioned, or else disapprove of them at my general conference. So that's the Lord saying, look, here's the names I've given. You can vote them up or vote them down at the general conference. It's up to you. Whatever you say goes because it is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There is, of course, also the famous story in church history where Joseph Smith, as the president of the church, was getting pretty fed up with Sidney Rigdon as his counselor in the first presidency. He could not simply release him. He had to bring it in front of the membership of the church for a vote on his motion to release Sidney Rigdon as his counselor. He asked the church to sustain him in releasing Sidney Rigdon as his counselor, but the church vote said, no, you can't release him as your counselor. And therefore, because Joseph Smith was actually following the revelations that he himself had produced, he had to keep Sidney Rigdon as his counselor. That was back in the days when voting actually mattered. That was back in the day when the revelations that Joseph Smith produced were actually followed. And that was back in the day when the membership of the church actually had a voice in how the church was governed. Before I go any further with Elder Christofferson, I want to quote from a current manual in the church. It's the Doctrine and Covenants Student Manual. It's section 26. It can be found on the church website. It's called the Law of Common Consent. That is what the chapter is dealing with section 26 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Law of Common Consent. And here is what the manual says. It quotes from Bruce R. McConkie. Now, Bruce R. McConkie is a long way from the origins of the church when you had a vote as to whether a person should be in office or not, and the membership really had a voice in what happened in the affairs of the church. Instead, he says, well, they're supposed to give a sustaining vote, and that's really all they're there for. But because agency is important, the people are given the opportunity to say, hey, Lord, we don't like the guy that you chose, and we would rather go against what you want. That's the way he frames it. But importantly, he also says, before the officers may serve in their positions, they must receive a formal sustaining vote of the people over whom they are to preside. Let me read this entire quote for you from the manual. They are quoting Bruce R. McConkie from Mormon Doctrine, pages 149 and 50. Here's the quote. Elder Bruce R. McConkie explained that, quote, administrative affairs of the church are handled in accordance with the law of common consent. This law is that in God's earthly kingdom, the king counsels what should be done. But then he allows his subjects to accept or reject his proposals. Unless the principle of free agency is operated in righteousness, men do not progress to ultimate salvation in the heavenly kingdom hereafter. Accordingly, and here we get to the money quote, accordingly, church officers are selected by the spirit of revelation in those appointed to choose them, but before the officers may serve in their positions, they must receive a formal sustaining vote of the people over whom they are to preside. Now, Bruce McConkie is not known for being anything other than extremely conservative in his views, and yet even Bruce R. McConkie states that before any officers can serve in their positions, they have to receive the sustaining vote of the people over whom they are to preside. This is what Bruce R. McConkie said in Mormon Doctrine, 
50 years ago, and this quote is in a current manual of the church available on the church website. And yet, the current leaders of the church are violating this principle. Also in the same chapter of the same manual is a quote from Joseph Fielding Smith from his Doctrines of Salvation, Volume 3, page 123. The manual first asks the question, could a person hold an office in the church without the consent of the people? That's the question the manual asks. Then they quote Joseph Fielding Smith to say, no. The answer to that question is no. A person cannot hold an office in the church without the consent of the people. Here's the quote. No man can preside in this church in any capacity without the consent of the people. Let me repeat that. No man, I think that includes Russell and Nelson, can preside. Well, let's see. He's already been set apart as the president. I think that means he presides in this church in any capacity. I think that includes the president of the church without the consent of the people. The Lord has placed upon us the responsibility of sustaining by vote those who are called to various positions of responsibility. No man, should the people decide to the contrary, could preside over anybody of Latter-day Saints in this church, and yet it is not the right of the people to nominate, to choose, for that is the right of the priesthood. So he's saying the same thing as Elder Bruce R. McConkie, his son-in-law, said later. And once again, Joseph Fielding Smith was not known for being one of the radical, liberal elements of the church. And before I leave this subject completely, I also have to mention the fact that in the same manual, where it's talking about the law of common consent, it says this, quote, this is from the manual on the church website, not only are church officers sustained by common consent, but this same principle operates for policies. Did you hear that? This same principle operates for policies, major decisions, acceptance of new scripture, and other things that affect the lives of the saints. So my question is, if the law of common consent operates for policies and other things that affect the lives of the saints, when was the November 2015 exclusionary policy sustained by common consent of the members? I must have missed that general conference. And taking this principle of common consent to its logical conclusion, that means that the November 2015 exclusionary policy is of no force and effect in the church because it has never been sustained by the common consent of the members. But once again, this is just another example of how the current apostles in the LDS church believe they are above the law, they are above the need for common consent of the members of the church in order to implement policies, in order to call a new president, in order to call a new first presidency, and basically in order to run this church the way they want, without any interference from the members and their right to vote, as set forth in the Revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. Guided by the divine inspiration he receives, the President selects his counselors, and then with the other apostles sets them apart. This is the only place in the process where any revelation is even allowed for, is when the new President who has already been selected by the procedure established in the church, chooses his counselors. And if it is by divine revelation, as stated by Elder Christofferson, then the divine revelation is that Elder Uchtdorf is no longer wanted as a counselor by the God of heaven and earth. Elder Uchtdorf has, in effect, been demoted by God. No wonder Elder Uchtdorf appears throughout this meeting as someone who is trying as best he can to get through a difficult situation, an embarrassing situation, even a humiliating situation. And never once during this entire meeting, as far as I can tell from the video, does Elder Uchtdorf look over at the First Presidency with a smile on his face and an approving nod, as the rest of the Apostles do. In fact, Elder Uchtdorf never looks over at the new First Presidency at all. The only time I see him smile during the entire event is when he looks over and shares a smile with his wife sitting in the audience. It seems to be a response to a smile from her of support. And this one smile from Elder Uchtdorf to his wife during the meeting can be seen at the 9 minute 12 second mark in the video. 
Following the reorganization of the first presidency, the apostle who has served the second longest is set apart as president of the Quorum of the Twelve. If the second longest serving apostle is called into the first presidency, the apostle next in seniority is appointed as acting president of the Twelve. Here is where things get a little complicated. Elder Christofferson has to go into this detail because the three longest serving apostles at this point in order are Nelson, Oakes, and Ballard. Elder Oakes has been called into the first presidency. He would otherwise be the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. Elder Ballard is next, and therefore Elder Ballard will be serving as the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve. That special meeting in the temple in this case took place last Sunday morning in a setting of fasting and prayer. Here is the point where Elder Christofferson says that this meeting already took place. The first presidency was already called. It happened two days ago, and we're just letting you know about it now. We don't need your sustaining vote. We're just letting you know that we already did this and passing on the good news to you. It is also not clear why they needed to meet in a spirit of fasting and prayer, inasmuch as it was already determined by church procedure that Russell Nelson would be the new president, and apparently prior to the meeting he had already chosen who his two new counselors would be, inasmuch as they were called and set apart in this same meeting on Sunday. As a participant, I must say it was a sweet, sacred experience in which the Lord's will was clearly manifest and all were in full accord. Now here we get to the other aspect of the description of this process that I mentioned before. Earlier, Elder Christofferson makes it clear that this is simply a matter of church procedure. This is the way things happen. Russell Nelson is going to be the new president because he is the longest serving apostle. Case closed. Everybody knows it going into it. But now he shifts and says that it was a sweet and sacred experience during which the will of the Lord was manifested, and all were in accord. Well, how was the will of the Lord manifested in a meeting where the outcome was already assured, and no revelation was needed, none was requested, none was received? It was a simple matter of doing what the church policy and procedures already dictate. Here's where we see policy and procedure being redefined and recast as the will of the Lord, and essentially what constitutes the new definition of revelation in the LDS Church. This experience confirmed once again that Jesus Christ directs his church. And apparently this experience also once again confirms that when leaders say Jesus Christ directs his church, what leaders actually mean is the leaders are following the policies and procedures of the church and don't need any revelation from Jesus Christ to do it. We're pleased to announce to you this morning that President Russell M. Nelson was set apart as the 17th president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on January 14, 2018, with President Dallin H. Oaks as first counselor and President Henry B. Eyring as second counselor in the first presidency. And here is the point where Elder Christofferson finally drops the bomb that Elder Uchtdorf is no longer in the first presidency. Not only is Elder Uchtdorf out and Elder Oaks in, Elder Eyring has been demoted from first counselor in the first presidency to second counselor in the first presidency. This is a big day, though, for Elder Oaks, who gets promoted out of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles to first counselor in the first presidency. And this announcement is made all in the context of saying, we did this two days ago, we didn't need a sustaining vote from the members, in spite of the fact that that's what the revelations of the church require. This reminds me of the book Animal Farm by George Orwell, where at the beginning, the animals revolt against the farmers and put up as one of their primary commandments, all animals are equal. However, as you will recall, by the end of the book in chapter 10, that line has been amended by the leaders to say, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. We will now hear from President Russell M. Nelson, followed by each of his counselors. At this point in the podcast, I'm going to change the format a little bit. Instead of running the tape continuously and making comments here and there, I am going to pick and choose a few comments made by the new First Presidency that I find of particular interest, and we'll make a few comments about those, and then I'll close out the podcast. Frankly, I think that I've said pretty much everything that I already have to say about why it is that I feel that because of this new First Presidency, 
was called and set apart without a vote of the membership of the church. It can fairly be characterized as an illegitimate first presidency. Let's go to President Nelson now and see what he has to say. When a president of the church passes away, there is no mystery about who is next called to serve in that capacity. There's no electioneering, no campaigning, no revelation, but only the quiet workings of a divine plan of succession put in place by the Lord himself. Now hold on there just a second, President Nelson. The succession plan was put in place by the Lord himself. If that's true, which it's not, would you mind showing me the revelation where God put in place this particular succession plan that the oldest, longest-serving member of the Quorum of the Twelve automatically becomes the president of the church? And while you're looking for that revelation, President Nelson, maybe you could show me the revelation that says that the first presidency can be called and set apart without a sustaining vote of the church membership. I'd like to see that one, too. Not only is there no revelation that says the senior member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles should become president of the church, there is also, historically speaking, been a variety of ways that have been used to determine seniority in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. For example, when the original apostles were called in 1835, they were arranged in seniority by chronological age. The oldest member was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and the youngest member was the junior member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Later on in Brigham Young's administration, he tinkered some more with the order of seniority of the apostles. It was 1875. Brigham Young was getting toward the end of his life. He would pass away two years later in 1877, and it appears that he wanted John Taylor to become the next president. Unfortunately, ahead of John Taylor, in apostolic seniority, were Orson Hyde and Orson Pratt. What Brigham Young did was he ensured that John Taylor would become the next president by removing Orson Hyde and Orson Pratt from their seniority positions above John Taylor and put them at positions below John Taylor in seniority. How did he do this? Well, what he said was, because Orson Hyde had been disfellowshipped for a short period of time in 1846, and because Orson Pratt had been excommunicated for a short period of time in 1842, the new rule announced by Brigham Young was that seniority was determined by the longest period of continuous service as an apostle. Therefore, Orson Hyde and Orson Pratt were removed from their senior positions in front of John Taylor, and John Taylor became the third president of the church after Brigham Young died. But Brigham Young was also tinkering behind the scenes in order to try and make sure that his son became an apostle in the Quorum of the Twelve, and that his son would likely become president of the church. How did Brigham Young do this? Well, what he did was he secretly ordained his son, whose name was John Willard Young, as an apostle. Brigham Young ordained John Willard in 1855. But doesn't an apostle have to be a member of the Quorum of the Twelve? Isn't that sort of what goes along with the concept? Well, that's true in modern Mormonism, but at the time, Brigham Young had an idea, and that was that he would ordain his son, John Willard Young, as an apostle in 1855, so that by the time he was introduced into the Quorum of the Twelve, he would already have all that seniority established over the other members in the Quorum of the Twelve, who had been apostles in the Quorum of the Twelve, but had not been apostles in the Quorum of the Twelve as early as 1855. How old was John Willard Young when his father, Brigham Young, ordained him as an apostle? Well, John Willard Young was born in 1844, and he was ordained by his father in 1855. That means he was not even a teenager. Yes, Brigham Young, the second president of the church, secretly ordained his son an apostle when he was 11 years old, with the goal in mind that his son could become president of the church because he would have all that seniority as an apostle built up since the time he was 10 or 11. And no, I am not making this up. And if any of this sounds like the Machiavellian Brigham Young we got to know in the two-part podcast, Apostolic Coup d'Etat, that is probably not a coincidence. There is a lot that could be said about the very interesting times and relationship to the church and leadership in the church of John Willard Young, but that is for another day. 
Suffice it to say here that because the leadership of the church did not want John Willard Young to ascend to become the president of the church, which he actually could have upon the death of Lorenzo Snow, it was decided to change once again the seniority-based system in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. It was not the longest-serving apostle. Rather, it became the longest-serving, continuously-serving apostle in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So when President Nelson says that this plan of succession was put in place by the Lord himself, that is a highly dubious statement for him to make. In fact, it is almost as dubious as his January 2016 claim that the November 2015 exclusionary policy was received by revelation from God. Let's see if President Nelson has anything else interesting to say. I've served in the Quorum of the Twelve under five previous presidents of the church. I have watched each president receive revelation and respond to that revelation. Don't you just sometimes wish there were opportunities to ask follow-up questions like, what revelations are you talking about that the past five presidents have received and acted upon that you say you have witnessed? The president immediately before you was Thomas S. Monson. What revelation did he receive? I know you seem like you're going to die on the hill of the claim that the exclusionary policy was a revelation received by Thomas S. Monson, but really, President Monson never received any revelations, or at least I am safe in saying that Thomas S. Monson never claimed to receive any revelations. The president before him was Gordon B. Hinckley. What revelation did Gordon B. Hinckley receive? Are we talking about that men should wear no earrings and that women should wear only one pair of earrings? Is that the revelation you're talking about? How about Howard W. Hunter, the president before Hinckley? He served only nine months. He must have received a revelation very quick since he served as president for such a short period of time. There is no record of Howard W. Hunter claiming to receive any revelation. Before him was Ezra Taft Benson. What revelation are we talking about with Ezra Taft Benson? Are we talking about the 14 fundamentals of following the prophet? Well, wait, that wouldn't count because actually he gave that talk before he was president of the church. Thank God. And before him was Spencer W. Kimball. That's number five before Russell M. Nelson. Spencer W. Kimball could be credited with receiving a revelation to lift the priesthood ban. But really, when you look at that from a historical perspective, there was no revelation. That was simply a political move that was long past due. So really, Russell M. Nelson seems to want to keep alive this myth that the presidents of the church receive revelation from God when actually they are barren. They are devoid of revelation. There is no connection between heaven and earth insofar as the leadership of the LDS church is concerned. And along with the idea of promoting the idea that current leaders of the church actually receive revelation, Russell M. Nelson is going to go all in and intimate as strongly as he can that the leaders of the church also have personal visitations with Jesus Christ. We talked about this in a prior episode called, Have the Apostles Actually Seen Jesus Christ? In that episode, we examined the historical data and concluded that modern apostles have not seen Jesus Christ, and yet they try and choose their language, or to be fair, some of them try and choose their language very carefully when they're testifying of Jesus Christ in order to give the impression that they have seen Jesus Christ without actually coming out and saying that they have seen Jesus Christ. Here is President Nelson's entry into the competition, and you will see that he gets very high marks in this category. Listen to how he implies that he has seen Jesus Christ without actually coming out and saying it. I declare my devotion to God, our eternal Father, and to his Son, Jesus Christ. I know them, love them. So President Nelson not only loves Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, he knows them, if you know what I mean. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Not only is President Nelson wanting to keep alive the myth that revelation continues in the church, but also that personal visitations from Jesus continue. All the apostles have seen Jesus Christ, especially the president of the church, and that is why you should do what they say, because, you know, Jesus. And finally, what would an address by the new president of the church be without blaming the members of the church who have left the church for staying away from the church and not coming back? Here's what President Nelson has to say 
on that score. Now, if you have stepped off the path, may I invite you with all the hope in my heart to please come back. Whatever your concerns, whatever your challenges, there's a place for you in this, the Lord's church. Unless your parents are gay. Notice that the only reason people leave the church is not because of anything the church does that's wrong. It's not because of anything the church leaders do or have done that's wrong. It is always the fault of the members. It is because of your challenges. It is because of your concerns. Come back to the church. We won't do anything to address those concerns or talk about those challenges. No, just come back Get over your concerns and get over your challenges, and then you are welcome back into the church. This is victim-blaming pure and simple. Now, I hate to break it to you, President Nelson, but the reason that so many people are leaving the church is largely because the church is incapable of taking responsibility for any of its actions. And this has manifested itself primarily in the church's penchant for hiding its own history from its members. The church will not take responsibility for its own actions. And the other way it's manifest is by blaming the members whenever members leave the church, just like President Nelson did here. Tell you what, President Nelson, first take the beam out of your eye, and then I'll take the moat out of my eye, okay? Well, that about concludes tonight's podcast from Radio Free Mormon. Late breaking news, this just in, one of Elder Uchtdorf's new responsibilities will be to head the Correlation Committee. I'm sure that President Nelson hopes that by giving Elder Uchtdorf this calling, he will learn once and for all what is the true doctrine of the Church and will stick to the script from this time forth. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. 